You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Turn our attention now to our Advent series. It is the month of December, and we are in an Advent series called The Gift. Last week, we began studying in Matthew chapter 2, the narrative of the wise men. And what we learned and discerned from Matthew chapter 2 is that Jesus gives the gift of joy. That Jesus gives the gift of joy. And I want you to hear the grace in that. One of the fundamental things that a human being needs most foundationally is joy and it cannot be faked nor manufactured but it can be received freely as a gift and what we saw in the narrative of the wise men is that Jesus gives the gift of joy and he gives it in abundance like he doesn't just sort of siphon it out little bits here and there he gives all of it to us and that is transformative you know people I hope and I trust and I hope some of them are in this room that are consumed by joy and you just can't get enough of them I'm not talking about weird Pollyanna-ishness I'm saying sincere authentic joy that is transformative of life and Jesus gives us that gift this morning we're going to turn the page and we're going to look at a different narrative if you've got your Bibles I want to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 2 Now, I approach Luke chapter 2 with great fear and trepidation because I believe that it is probably the most read passage of Scripture in the Bible. Certainly every year at Advent, at Christmas, families gather around, churches gather around, communities will gather around, and will hear the Christmas story read from Luke 2. And for good reason. I would tell you that I believe that Luke chapter 2 is the absolute center of your Bible. No, no, not in terms of space, that's Psalm 118, but in terms of importance. Luke chapter 2 is the center of Scripture. Everything in the Old Testament points to what occurs in Luke 2. Everything in the New Testament following points back to what occurs in Luke chapter 2. As C.S. Lewis said, it is the incarnation that is the greatest miracle in all of history. God becomes flesh. So I want to read Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20, and then we'll try to unpack it a bit and see how we can apply it. So Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20. I hope this is a familiar passage to almost all of us. Luke 2 reads, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. 
And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. This is God's word. And it is the Christmas story. Hopefully familiar to you. And yet, as I got to walk back through this passage several times over the week, I I was struck all over again just how brilliant, just how packed, just how fabulous this passage is. It is the Christmas story. And I know that to be true because Charles Schultz told me so. The great, great, wonderful cinematic masterpiece that is Charlie Brown, And the Christmas story, we get to hear Linus telling us the true meaning of Christmas. In fact, I know we just read this, but it's so good. Why don't we watch it together? Roll that, Jeff. I guess you were right, Linus. I shouldn't have picked this little tree. Everything I do turns into a disaster. I guess I really don't know what Christmas is all about. Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. It has nothing to do with grandmothers getting run over by reindeers. That is what Christmas is all about. Now, it's one of the most brilliant sequences of animation ever. Because if you notice, and Schultz was very intentional about this, it is the only time Linus will ever drop his blanket. He'll never drop his blanket in anything else you ever see him in, but when he reads the Christmas story and he talks about glory to God in the highest, he drops his blanket. His source of security and identity, he lets go. And he talks about the coming of the Christ. And he's finished, and he collects his blanket, and he walks back over. It's a brilliant portrayal of, I think, even what this passage is poignantly trying to convey. 
So I want to walk back through Luke chapter 2. I want to be super careful not to overteach this passage because it is so familiar. I want to get out of the way a little bit, but I want to draw attention because there are some fabulous facets in this text. So let me start back at the beginning. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Why does Luke do this? Because Luke wants us to know that this is historical fact. This happened in history. It is traceable to a time. It is not myth, nor is it legend. See, every other story of deity becoming man-like is identical. They all have the same idea. Zeus does a thing with a swan, that's weird, and then we have like these half-beings roaming around. That's the story of Greek mythology. Hercules is a sort of a God-man thing, and Hercules lying in his bed, two serpents come up to baby Hercules, and he chokes the serpents out with his little hands. But this story is remarkably unremarkable. There's not much to it. It's a completely different thing, and it happened in history. It says, during the time of Caesar Augustus, a decree, literally a dogma, goes out. Caesar Augustus is Octavian. He is the great nephew of Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar is assassinated. He had been adopted by Julius, or Octavian had been adopted by Julius Caesar, and so he becomes the heir. He's a part of a Roman government called the Triumvirate. Antonius and another guy finally die out. He takes over. They grant him the title Sebastos or Augustus. He's the supreme one. And he reigns for a very long time from 14 BC to AD 27. And he's a master administrator. He's a builder of infrastructure. He takes all of these censuses. We know that there's at least three of them and they each take about five years to do. What's the point of the census? Well, it is a way for him to literally number everybody in the Roman Empire and tax them because that's how the government will run. And so we have under Augustus this thing called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. In the empire, there is no war, but it's not the kind of peace that you and I would enjoy. Make no mistake, it is Roman suppression. Their thumb is down on everybody. It's also called the Pax Augustus, the peace that Caesar Augustus has brought to the world. And into that setting, Luke is going to write this narrative. Now, Luke is a Gentile. He's a Greek. It's interesting that Luke, this Greek Gentile, will write more words in our New Testament than any other author, including Paul. That's fascinating. And he's writing about what happens under the oppression of this Gentile regime. It has been a very dark time for Israel. In fact, some would say the lowest time for Israel. It has been 400 years since God has spoken through a prophet named Malachi. And then silence. During that time, the Greeks come in under Alexander and they take over the realm. And then Rome has come and they are staunchly in place. And it looks like this is just the way it's going to be. Could not get any darker. And now this decree goes out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Then verse two, this is the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. We know a lot about this guy, Quirinius. He was a Roman legate, which means he was a battle-hardened, seasoned soldier who rises up through the ranks, and he's sort of the chief steward of administering the census, meaning you go and register or Quirinius' soldiers kill you. It's a pretty good way of getting things done. This is what Quirinius is tasked with doing. Verse 3, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. This was not a Roman practice. This is the way they did it in uh, the province of Judea because that was a very Hebraic Jewish way of doing it. So they said, go to the, uh, to the land of your ancestral uh, heritage and register there. 
and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up. We talked earlier about the sovereignty of God over governments, and we do continue to hope and pray that God will lead if that should be his purpose and desire and plan for the Atkins to get their visa and the citizenship. But we know from this passage that God is sovereign over governments, including the government of the Roman Empire. How in the world are we going to get Mary from Nazareth all the way to Bethlehem? How are we going to get her? It's 90 miles away. People don't just travel recreationally. It's 90 miles away. How are we going to get her down there? Well, it just so happens that Caesar Augustus, who thinks he's the sovereign of the world, issues a dogma, a decree. But all of that is under the sovereignty of God who says, I'm going to put this into place. And because of that, Joseph, you're going to have to take this 90-mile jaunt with your pregnant mm, fiancé. All right? So here's what we've got. Joseph also went up from Galilee from the town of Nazareth, way up in the north, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Luke uses all these expressions to make sure we understand the enormity of all this. It has to be Bethlehem. Mary probably understands from what the angel tells her that the baby has to be born in Bethlehem. Why didn't God just choose a woman who lived in Bethlehem? Because God's not efficient. He's not so concerned with, you know, logistics. He just does things and it happens. She's in Nazareth. She's not even married. God's unconcerned. But it has to be Bethlehem because Micah chapter 5 verse 2 says the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. But she lives in Nazareth and she's not even married. How is this going to be? God says, I got this. We know that it has to be in Judea because Genesis chapter 49 says that the Messiah must be born to the tribe of Judah in Judea. It has to be down there. So it can't be in Nazareth. How is it going to happen? God, how are you going to come through on this one? God says, I got this. I'm going to have this Gentile emperor who thinks he's in charge issue a decree. And so they're going to go to Bethlehem because the Messiah must come from Bethlehem. How come? Because Bethlehem means the house of bread. And all through John chapter 6, as we studied a few weeks ago, Jesus is going to self-declare, I am the bread of life. I am the very provision of God. I am the storehouse of his bounty. And he's going to be born in the house of bread because he himself is the bread of life. All this is no accident. It is not coincidental. And also, Dave, um, uh, Luke tells us that this child will be born in, because he is the lineage of David. He is the rightful Davidic heir to be the successor to the Davidic kingdom. He's not random. This is his fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. Then verse 5, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Some of your older translations might say married rather than betrothed. It's not the actual translation. It is either engaged or betrothed. Now, there might have actually been some kind of ceremony up in Nazareth. We don't know. But the word is very precise. It's very technical. It means that they have not yet consummated their marriage. They might be united in a, civil, in a civic sense, but they have not consummated their marriage. In other words, Mary will give birth having not been with a man. I'm going to avoid yellow words here and just say the marriage has not been consummated. Okay? So take it with that. Verse 6. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. It's quite unadorned. doesn't give us a whole lot of information, but here's what I'm guessing. Having never actually been pregnant myself, I'm guessing that going 90 miles either on donkey back or on foot, fully pregnant, probably not a great time. 
Now, I have been married to someone who was pregnant, and my thought of walking her 90 miles, I don't think it's going to be a fun journey either. But it's a scandalous thing. They are not married per se, and yet she goes with Joseph. His lineage is from Bethlehem. Hers probably not so sure. But she has to go because she's betrothed to him. She can't be left alone in Nazareth. It would probably go bad with her. And so, quite unremarkably, they find themselves in Bethlehem. Then verse 7, and she gave birth, and that's it. Like we expect a whole lot more pomp and circumstance and explanation. And there was great moaning and there was pain and there was net. No, no, no. She gave birth. That's it. That's all we get. To her firstborn. And that's a technical term. It's not just that he was the first because Mary would have additional children afterward. This is a title of primacy. He is the inheritor of all of the rights of the family, which means he is the union of all of Mary's lineage and all of Joseph's lineage, which we'll get the genealogy from Luke in chapter 3 and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. Now these swaddling cloths is a very Jewish tradition, strips of cloth wrapped very tightly to make sure that the child's limbs were straight and secure. And she lays him in a manger. Now again, a manger is not the cute little pallet board, fluffy thing that we typically see. It's a chunk of stone that they roughly carve out the top and that's where they feed donkeys and sheep and cattle. It's into this sort of setting that Mary has to lay this child because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, a lot of pageantry has been made about this. We've got some cranky innkeeper who's just, you know, for whatever reason, just not going to let him in. Well, what's going on here? This means either two different things. One idea is it's a family guest house that a family has that's already full and they can't go in. More likely, it is the public guest house that every community would have. So as travelers would come through, they could stay there for the night, free of charge, that's just um, what, the, what the community provided, and they'd move on. But because of this decree that goes out from Augustus, a lot of people are coming into Bethlehem, and the house is already full by the time they get there. Now, we're not told about a whole bunch of urgency and somebody go boil some water and grab some towels. We're not told any of that. It's just that the guest house is full, and so they have to go next door. Next to every guest house would have been a stable where the animals are kept. But if you've ever seen pictures of Bethlehem, it doesn't look like Nebraska. It's not Kansas. We have a tendency to think that it's, it's not. It's very hilly. It looks like the hill country. And so for their stables, often as not, they would carve out of the stone these little caves, and that's where they would bed the animals down. So apparently, they go into this area. It's certainly a place for animals because of the manger, and this is where they have to stay. Okay? Now then, the story is going to shift in verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field. Yes, they are literally outstanding in their field. Okay? keeping watch over their flock by night. Shepherds. A lot can and has been said about shepherds. Yes, they are sort of the lowest rung on the social ladder. They're generally the runts of the family. David, we know, was a shepherd as a boy because he was the last in line of all the siblings. And so he's the one who has to go out and take care of the sheep. The Romans would have absolutely despised shepherds because they smelled like what they stepped in. And they were the least, the last. But the Jewish people would not have reviled shepherds. In fact, Abraham had been a shepherd. Moses was a shepherd. David was a shepherd. They just didn't respect the shepherds because they were sort of the, the outcast, the fringe, the marginalized. If you committed a crime and your only witness to exonerate you was a shepherd, you're guilty. Their testimony was not standing up in court, that kind of a thing. And to these people... God decides he's going to make it known. 
There's shepherds out there. The least ones that you would expect God to come to first, he comes to shepherds. Now then, verse nine, and an angel of the Lord. This is not the angel of the Lord. You'll never find the angel of the Lord in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, you'll find the angel of the Lord, a pre-incarnate Christ, we would say. But in the New Testament, you'll not see this. This is an angel of the Lord, probably Gabriel. Don't know that for sure, but most likely. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. Now, what's going on here? The glory of the Lord shone around them. This is the presence of God himself. Shows up in the sky. Why is this such a big deal? Because 500 plus years earlier, the prophet Ezekiel, excuse me, talks about the glory of the Lord departing Israel. And it is a gut-wrenching narrative. God says, you're my, you're my favorites, Israel. I love you. I found you. You were discarded. You were nothing. You were last. You were lost. But I found you. I nurtured you. I brought you to health. I washed you. I cleaned you. I raised you. I gave myself in love to you. And I became yours. And you've been unfaithful, serially, over and over again. And so I'm leaving. God says, I will take my glory from the temple. And he takes chapters and chapters and chapters to say, I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave. You get the sense he just doesn't want to go. But Israel will not have their God. And so finally in Ezekiel, the glory of the Lord departs the temple. I don't know if you can imagine that, but for centuries they actually experienced the glory of the Lord present at the temple that Solomon had built. But in the time of Ezekiel, he says, that's it. I have to go. And it's very slow in departure. And then here we go in Luke 2, and the glory of the Lord just shows up. Like he couldn't wait to be back. He so desperately wanted to be with his people that he even showed up at a shepherd's field unannounced to those people. Now, I get the idea. As we said last week, probably the wise men came much later, a couple years later. But you get the sense that later on, maybe somehow, maybe even in heaven, the wise men are kind of bragging about, well, there we were in Babylon or Persia, and we saw this amazing star, probably the glory of God himself, and it led us there. You shepherds, you shepherds, how did you guys get the announcement? And they go, yeah, we got that too, but we also got angels. Right? I mean, this is like the most awesome announcement. You get an angel, you get the presence of God, and then it gets even crazier. The angel said to them, fear not. Why does the angel say fear not? Like this is on auto repeat for Gabriel. Every time he shows up, he's got to go, whoa, 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 don't be afraid. Why is that? Well, it's certainly not because God is less holy than they think. And it's certainly not because they are more holy than they think. It is because God is holier than they think and they are worse off than they think. So he has to tell them, do not fear. There is an enormous gap between God and man because of the enormity of sin, and yet God desperately wants to be with his people. So fear not, he's coming among you. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And this is particularly for Israel. It'll expand later, but this is specifically to Israel. For verse 11. I would contend that verse 11 of chapter 2 might be the most important verse in the whole of Scripture. At least I mean that today. Next week, maybe I'll change. But right now, chapter 2, verse 11, biggest verse in the Bible. For unto you is born. This is the strangest birth announcement ever. You would expect a birth announcement to say, for unto Mary and Joseph is born this day, but it doesn't say that. 
An angel shows up to these nobodies on a hillside, these shepherds, and says, for unto you, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. The only verse in the whole of the New Testament that has these three titles in the same sentence referring to Jesus. He is Savior, He is Christ, He is the Lord. This little unremarkable baby who is sitting in Bethlehem. Now what's going on here? Well, we're pretty sure we know exactly where these shepherds would have been. It's about two miles outside of Bethlehem. So Bethlehem is about six miles south of Jerusalem. About two miles outside of that is this place called, not surprisingly, the Shepherd's Field. Now the tourism industry of Palestine has overcapitalized on this along with the Roman Catholic Church. And so it's got all kinds of pomp and circumstance. You can buy a, a souvenir in any color you can imagine. There's entry gates and there's all kinds of little stalls set up. It's a pretty big Disney so sort of deal. It's called the Shepherd's Field. And if it's there, and we're pretty sure that it is, then we know that right there also is a place called Migdal Eder, which is translated means the tower of the flock. This is a place where they would have protection to uh, come together as shepherds to take care of these very particular special sheep. Migdal Eder, two miles outside of Bethlehem, this shepherd's field is where all of the lambs and the sheep were to be kept and raised because those sheep were special. They were spotless without blemish and they were kept specifically for the Passover, which we heard read this morning from Mark 14. Those sheep would have been kept there. Those shepherds would have been very specifically uh, tasked in their job. And it is to those people that God comes and gives this announcement. He says, verse uh, 12, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger, exactly as we know it's already occurred earlier in the passage. And then verse 13, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host. It's like suddenly the sky just tears open and the entire angelic realm knocks Gabriel over and goes, we, we, we gotta sing about this. We've been waiting for this since eternity past when we were created. We've known in the mind of God that he's going to redeem these fallen, sinful creatures. And it's happening. It's happening right now when the angel says, today is born to you. All of the hope of the Old Testament lands on that one moment of a birth. Today is born unto you, shepherds. And then the whole heavenly host just busts forward. And it says, pretty amazingly, a multitude of the heavenly host sort of a weak translation, a multitude of the armies of heaven blow forth. Like they can't stand it anymore. The sky just tears open and they sing. The heavenly host praising God and saying, and then verse 14 is the angelic commentary on what's going on in this scene. Glory to God in the highest. I remind you, they've just come from his presence. It's not like they go, you know, God, that, what was he like again? No, they were just there. And the sky tears open and they bust forth and they say, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Not to all people, with those whom find favor with God. Verse 15, when the angels went away, you get the idea that they just show up in a flash and they don't really want to leave. They sort of dwindle off slowly. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem. It's about a two mile hike. And see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Good response. When God tells you about Jesus, you go. You don't wait and try to figure it out. You go. Verse 16. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Luke is wanting us to understand that this happens exactly as God intended and as, as he said it would happen. 
And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. In other words, the shepherds go, yeah, sorry about the smell, but some angels showed up. And Joseph goes, let me guess. Let me guess. He said, don't be afraid, right? Like I've heard this one before. We know that the angel showed up and told Joseph that, told Mary that. Yeah, that's his script. He does it all the time. And all who heard it wondered. They marveled. They were astonished. This word wondered is what happens when you see a miracle. You go, they could not believe that these shepherds were the recipients of the first gospel announcement. It's really amazing. This is the first time the gospel is preached in this way, and it's done by an angel, and it's never, ever done again by an angel. Thereafter, the gospel proclamation is left to people. Angel kicks it off, and then you'll never see an angel preach the gospel again. Now it's on people. All who heard it wondered or marveled at what the shepherds had told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And we'll talk about Mary, Lord willing, next week and the gift that God gives to her. Uh, So I invite you to come back for that. Verse 20, And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God. Two separate words. What's going on there? It's not just that they were getting their praise and worship on. It's not that. There's something specific. Glorifying God and praising Him means they reordered their lives. It means He became more important to them than themselves. His goals, His priorities, His ends became more central to their lives than their own. And I'll just tell you and confess, that seems foreign to me on most days. But that's what it means to give God glory, is to give Him more weight than you. That's literally what the word means, to give Him more weight than me. And uh, yeah, I need grace for that. And I bet you do too. And the good news is that there is. They were praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Well, this is the text. Believe it or not, I'm so, so uh, sort of overwhelmed by just the, uh, the glory of this passage. I really only have one summary uh, point for this whole passage. It's pretty brilliant. It goes like this. I wore my dad's purple terry cloth robe. That's it. You get it? Okay, so even in our day and age, when we portray the nativity or when we portray a Christmas pageant or a Christmas play, there's even still a pecking order, isn't there? I know when I was a kid in my little church up in the panhandle, when it came time every Christmas to put on the Christmas pageant, guess who was never, ever going to be Joseph? This guy because it was Todd. (laughs) It's always Todd, man. Todd's dad was an elder. It's always going to be Todd. And Mary, Mary was always going to be Shannon. Now, understand, I had no ambition to be Mary, but I'm just saying, it was, of course, going to be Shannon. Shannon was the pastor's daughter, and the pastor was going to make absolutely certain that this guy was never married to his daughter. All right? She was first runner-up to Miss Texas twice. She's now married to an NFL football player, and I'm never going to be her Joseph. I know that clearly. I'm also never going to be a wise man. Mm-mm, that was Lawrence. His dad was a dentist. His dad blinged out his costume. I'm never going to be a wise man. No chance. I couldn't even be the livestock because they thought I was going to like run away. No, they said, look, you got one job, Barton. You stand there and stink. You're the shepherd. Okay, what am I supposed to do? So I, my dad had this nasty, 
purple terry cloth robe that I'm pretty sure he rebuilt engines in. It was from the Korean War or worse, I'm not sure. And so they found like an old dish rag and they tied that around my head. It was like the most inappropriate costume ever. And that's me. I wore my dad's purple terry cloth robe. You know why? Because I'm a shepherd. Because I was marginalized, fringe, nobody. And it's to those kinds of people that God announces. Which brings us to our big idea for the morning. Last week we talked about Jesus gives the gift of joy. I love this passage because this passage is about me. Jesus gives the gift of worth. Don't you see? The angels don't show up to the high priest. Angels don't show up to the Pharisees. Angels don't show up to the scribes. Angels don't even show up to the Roman gladiators. No, no, no. He shows up to the shepherds, the nobodies who live their entire life thinking, I'm really not worth all that much. It's just, just me. I'm living, I'm dying, I'm fertilizing. That's it. And to these people, God rips open the skies and says, do you have any idea how much I love you? You're nobody, but you're not nobody. You're my somebodies. Jesus gives the gift of worth. Don't you see, when we mix worth and we mix joy, we actually have a life that is worth living. It's only given by grace. You know how much God thinks you're worth? Look at, look at how Jesus comes into the world. He's laid in a manger and he'll die between thieves. What kind of deity would do that? If you can find a better one, let me know. I'll go worship him for seriouses. Because what kind of God would do such a thing? To send himself, God's willing to pull it off. God's willing to say, Jesus, go. What's even more astonishing is that Jesus says, I can't wait to go. Is it time? Is it time? Is it time? I can't wait to be laid in a feeding trough with donkey slobber. Let's go. You're worth that much. So I, I don't know really all of your situations, but I presume there are at least a day or three every week when you start to feel like, I don't really feel like I'm worth much. Oh, look at Luke chapter two. You and your little purple terry cloth bathrobe. You are worth the world to our God. And so if you're here this morning and you're not a believer and you're still trying to carve out your own joy and your own worth, I have great news of great joy. It's only attainable as a free gift. We believe that the passage that we read is God's inspired and errant word and that it is truth and we build our entire lives around it and we invite you to believe as well the rest of us here who are believers man we don't get it right all the time either but we want to be characterized as a people of joy and worth and we invite you to be along with us for the rest of you that are believers i want you to be captivated all over again and this christmas season as you hear christmas carols I want to invite you to listen particularly for one. It may be my favorite one this season because it just gut punches me every time I hear it. It's Oh Holy Night. Just one little refrain from it. It goes like this. Oh Holy Night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. I would contend a soul cannot fill its worth until he appears. So I invite you to believe. Jesus gives the gift of worth. All of it was God's plan from eternity past, and praise be to God, he did it. Let's pray together. 
Father, we do thank you for who you are, for what you have done, and for this passage. We thank you for the Christmas story. I pray, God, that it will continue to ring forth in the hearts and minds and souls of every person in this room. And Father, if there is someone here who does not know you, would you give them this Advent season the gift of joy and the gift of worth? Father, for the rest of us who have perhaps gotten in a little bit of a Christmas stagnation and it's become nothing more than a frustration about the traffic on Broadway, would you captivate our hearts all over again the gift that Jesus gives? God, we love you and we pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I want to remind you as we, uh, I'm going to ask you to stand for word of benediction. I want to remind you we're going to go have lunch at 1836 on Old Jacksonville. We'd love for you to join us, but you need to let us know. Jeff, if we can put that number back up, you need to let us know that you're coming. We're going to uh, hug some necks and we're going to uh, head over that direction. If you have not already, I give you full pastoral authorization to give Stephanie Mazingo a side hug. Just thank her for all of her work last night. It was awesome. We hope you come to lunch now. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you. May you reflect and give God praise and glory. God bless you. are dismissed. Have a great week. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.